The ornate Metropolitan Opera House was packed with 1920s elites. All of New York's upper crust had gathered to experience the newest invention by Leon Theremin. The crowd hushed as the angular Russian man walked on stage. In the center stood an odd apparatus. It appeared to be a wooden table with a triangular control board attached. The antenna on top and circular loop extending from its side made it look like a primitive computer. Theremin adjusted the dials, then he waved his hand near the antennas. His invention produced a series of eerie, high-pitched notes. One journalist would later describe it as a cello that had started crying after it lost its way home. For the next several years, Leon Theremin would captivate audiences throughout the U.S. with his invention. Meanwhile, no one suspected this physicist-turned-musician was leading a double life. Theremin wasn't just a talented artist. He was also a Soviet spy. In addition to his instruments, he would go on to create groundbreaking eavesdropping technology, technology that would live on well beyond his death. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on radio frequency identification, more commonly referred to as RFID, or in some circles, as spy chips. Leon Theremin created the groundwork for this technology in the mid-20th century, and today, they're tiny computer chips embedded with antennas. In this episode, we'll follow the development of RFID tags. They're cheap, paper-thin, and easy to track. Airlines use them to prevent lost luggage, and stores use them to discourage theft. But when triggered, the tags can potentially send information to databases without our knowledge. This provides institutions with access to our finances, purchase habits, and even our location. In our second episode, we'll take a deep dive into a few conspiracy theories about radio frequency identification. We'll determine exactly what kind of information these little chips can collect and if they're secretly being implanted within us. We'll also investigate just how secure these tags really are. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. 
Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Leon Theremin was born in 1896 in St. Petersburg, Russia. As a classically trained cellist and a brilliant student, college seemed like the natural choice. But World War I interrupted his academic dreams. Young Theremin was conscripted as a radio technician and trained in the world of broadcasting equipment. After the war ended, Theremin began working at the Physical Technical Institute in Petrograd, Russia. As he tinkered with one device, he noticed that various pieces of audio and electrical gear made odd sounds if placed near each other. He also realized he could control this noise simply by waving his hands around them. Nearly every other technician would have dismissed this as an odd fluke. But to Theremin, it was quite literally music to his ears. He created a new instrument around this technology and showed the device to his supervisors. It got so much attention, he even played a private show for the Soviet Russian leader Vladimir Lenin in 1922. Russian officials observed Theremin's growing popularity. They viewed his work as the perfect cover for him to get into the U.S. and spy on their capitalist opponents. So, in 1927, at the behest of the communist government, Theremin traveled to the U.S. He moved to a large townhouse in New York, where he worked on new music and inventions. While based in the U.S., he entertained elite guests, including Albert Einstein. Theremin's talent, fame, and growing wealth led him to meet a skilled black American ballet dancer named Lavinia Williams. The two fell in love and married in early 1938. But any sort of marital bliss was short-lived. 
Despite his intellect and musical savvy, Theremin was terrible at managing his finances. Several of his new business ventures floundered, and he couldn't pay back the money he'd borrowed. The racism in his time added to his troubles. Potential business partners were unwilling to work with him because he was married to a black woman. His creative aspirations dwindled. To keep inventing instruments seemed futile. By the spring of 1938, Theremin's growing debts and the effects of the Great Depression had made him homesick for the Soviet Union. The hostility between the U.S. and Soviet Union and Theremin's finances made it seemingly impossible to travel home legally. So Theremin turned to the Soviet spy network. They were able to access U.S. genealogical records and create a false passport for him. With everything in order, Theremin was scheduled to be smuggled out of the country aboard a Russian cargo ship known as the Starry Bolshevik. Theremin staged his getaway on September 15, 1938. He told no one about the plan, not even Lavinia. When he fled the country, he left her alone and confused. They never saw each other again. Unfortunately for Theremin, things would only get harder. While he'd left a mountain of creditors in America, his reputation was in even worse shape in the Soviet Union. The political winds had shifted dramatically since his departure 11 years before, in 1927. Under Joseph Stalin, Russian citizens endured brutal conditions. Anyone who had even the slightest contact with a non-Russian risked being sent to the unforgiving Siberian labor camps known as the gulags. This climate of paranoia made Theremin a fresh enemy of the state. Officials accused him of being a traitor and sentenced him to eight years of hard labor. The chances of survival looked bleak, but his education became his most valuable asset. He quickly became a supervisor and, within a year, was transferred out of prison to work in Moscow. His physical strength and his musical talent were nothing in comparison to his knowledge of radio waves. His captors knew it had value for more sinister means. While in Moscow, Theremin joined a team of other scientists and spent several years working on top-secret spy equipment. They were to be used against high-value U.S. targets. Following World War II, the U.S. and Soviet Union worked together to reorganize the post-war continent. The problem was, their political ideologies of democracy and communism put them at odds. Diplomacy between the countries deteriorated rapidly, nearly causing a third world war. In order to gather intelligence, both nations resorted to drastic measures to spy on each other. In fact, one of the most notable Russian attempts was a result of Theremin's own research. In the summer of 1945, a group of diplomats from the U.S. and USSR met at the American Embassy in Moscow. As a sign of goodwill, the Russian equivalent of Boy Scouts gave the U.S. ambassador, Avril Harriman, a hand-carved wooden plaque of the United States seal. Naturally, Harriman's security personnel examined every inch of the gift for listening devices, but found nothing. 
Unable to detect batteries or wires, they believed the device was safe. Harriman was so pleased that he put the seal in the study of his Moscow residence. But the gift was a Trojan horse. The seal contained a bug that the examiners had missed. Nearly seven years passed before Harriman was alerted to the breach. In 1952, American radio operators were adjusting the frequencies on their devices when they came across an odd channel. It was broadcasting Harriman's private conversations. Horrified, Harriman's staff and technicians got to work trying to find the breach. After sweeping the embassy for radio emissions and finding nothing, the only move left was to sweep the seal again. At last, they found the device. They had missed it the first time because of how deep it was buried. Investigators had never seen anything like it before, so they simply called it the thing. It was just an antenna attached to a microphone, and it didn't have any power source, making it nearly undetectable. As they learned more about the device, investigators discovered that the thing was activated by radio waves. Soviet operatives outside the building had beamed them at Harriman's home in order to switch on the device. The thing would use the waves as power and relay Harriman's conversations. When the Soviets weren't sending any waves, the thing remained off. Most importantly, this meant it could lie dormant while the U.S. conducted security sweeps. Although it seemed wildly futuristic at the time, the thing would serve as a foundation for technology used around the world, and it would be given a much less ominous name, Radio Frequency Identification, or RFID. The fact that it didn't have wires, batteries, or any other power source, and that it was triggered by external radio waves, made that particular device a so-called passive RFID tag. It's also possible to add a battery to this device, so it continually sends out a signal that readers pick up information from. This is known as an active RFID. For now, the main takeaway is that as the size of the electronic parts became smaller from the 1950s onward, the chips grew more common, and they were planted in more objects. Knowing this, the Russians' passive RFID was an undoubted success, so much in fact that it prompted the U.S. to develop its own version of the tech. Coming up, the U.S. creates its own RFID technology and turns it on its own customers. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. 
No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. And now back to the story. During the Cold War, the Russians developed an utterly new technology called radio frequency identification, or RFID, to spy on private diplomatic conversations. And when the U.S. government discovered the device, they knew it had even greater potential. It was brought back to the States for further development. However, instead of using it only on foreign enemies, America found entirely new uses. The U.S. government's early uses for RFID tags started out innocently enough. In the 1970s, the Department of Agriculture approached Los Alamos National Laboratory to develop a solution for their cow problem. They regularly gave their cattle hormones, but it was hard to keep track of which animal got what dose. With the new technology, they could implant a chip into an ear tag. Workers could then scan it to see if a cow was up to date on its medication. The success led the Los Alamos lab to seek even more applications for the technology. When the Department of Energy approached them to develop a method for tracking nuclear materials as they traveled across the country, their solution was to place an RFID tag, otherwise known as a transponder, into trucks carrying hazardous supplies. Just like the tag in Harriman's office, the ones used in the trucks also had an antenna. However, instead of using a microphone, these newer transponders carried a computer chip with its own ID number. The antenna on the gate of the facility receiving the goods would emit radio waves to the tag within the delivery truck. The vehicle's transponder would then respond with the ID code for the goods and other information, like the driver's ID. Even in the 1970s, when computers were massive, these tags were incredibly small. They were just a few inches long and slightly thicker than a penny. Different tags also had different ranges for emitting information. Lower frequencies could only send information if they were within a few inches of the reader. Higher frequencies could transmit data up to 10 to 20 feet. While the government was incorporating RFID into its ventures, the private sector was also developing its uses. In 1971, a man named Mario Cardulo met with the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey to discuss how this tech could be used for toll roads. At the time, toll roads could be notoriously long as people scrambled for exact change in the shortest line. Cordulo believed RFID could simply charge people electronically, making the entire process efficient. Unfortunately, his particular invention was too big. It was roughly the size of two cigarette boxes. Despite his promise that he could make it even smaller, the Port Authority passed. They doubted anyone would put such a large object on the windshield of their car. It wasn't until the early 1990s, when electronic toll booths took off, that states used the same method Cardulo invented. 
And while Cardulo's patent had expired by that time, meaning he didn't strike it rich, it seemed to be a case of bad timing, not a government plot to wait him out. At that point in the 1990s, radio frequency identification had a decent reputation. At worst, it was a dated piece of Cold War-era spy equipment. At best, it was a tool that improved bureaucratic efficiency. But by the late 90s, megacorporations began to explore how RFID could be used to track more personal data, like the habits of their customers. It all began with lipstick. Procter & Gamble owns the cosmetics brand Olay, which produced Color Moist Hazelnut Number 650. The problem was, people loved that shade so much that stores kept running out of it, even though P&G's warehouses were stocked full of the color. Kevin Ashton was a young brand manager at P&G. In 1997, he devoted himself to figuring out how he could keep the supply of hazelnut lipstick flowing to stores at a quicker and steadier rate. After searching for a year, Ashton believed he had found his solution, RFID. In 1998, he connected with two researchers, Professor Sanjay Sarma and Dr. David Brock, both from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT. They had been investigating ways to make these tags smaller, and the trio decided to place a tag with a unique identification number in the lipstick's packaging. At the time, these computer chips were still pretty expensive. Executives at P&G weren't convinced it was worth the cost. But Ashton demonstrated that tracking each tube of lipstick would up their bottom line. They could keep tabs on inventory, push more product, and improve sales. The idea of increased profit margins convinced stakeholders to sign off on the project. P&G gave the three men seed money for a completely new organization at MIT called the Auto ID Center. With this much support, the small team realized that they could do more than just track lipstick. They could scale their innovation to track every product on Earth if they wanted to. They believed their tech would reduce lost goods, decrease theft, and ensure items were always available. One member at MIT cast a vision for the future, saying, RFID will open a new world of convenience for consumers, who one day may be able to check themselves out at a supermarket in seconds. In short, it will transform the way we do business and the way we live. In order to track all these products, the center created a program that could assign a unique ID number to each item. Each number would consist of 96 characters, allowing them to create an ID for a staggering 80,000 trillion trillion objects. This is called Electronic Product Code, or EPC, and it's like a social security number for objects. This long string of characters makes RFID seem similar to a barcode, but the truth is that it's vastly different in four ways. First, Barcodes and their scanners need a direct line of sight. There can't be anything between the bar and the scanner. 
But RFID doesn't have those limitations because its tags are basically a microchip and an antenna. Readers can scan items through doors, walls, and envelopes. Second, a barcode is usually scanned only a few times, and after checkout, it isn't scanned at all. But RFID tags can be scanned multiple times. If a tag gets within range of a reader, that reader can identify the tag and determine its geographical location. Theoretically, a tag embedded within, say, a pair of shoes can be read by other scanners as well. Additionally, barcodes can only contain a limited amount of basic information, like product name, color, size, manufacturer, and brand. RFID tags, on the other hand, contain all this information, plus they can help companies log information about an item's production date, transport history, time spent on the shelf, and potentially the credit card information of the person who bought the item. Lastly, barcodes are known as read-only, which means the data on them can't be changed. The information on RFID, however, can be rewritten and falsified. Keeping track of all this information would require these companies to be incredibly organized. Namely, they'd need infrastructure to manage the tag readers. In order to see where items were in the supply chain, they'd have to embed these detection devices into warehouses, trucks, and stores. All of this information would go to a company's database, and that system would report when a particular store needed to restock an item. Automating these steps would save time, effort, and manpower. Companies could pinpoint exactly when and where they needed to send their goods. Not to mention, it increased convenience for customers. Items were far less likely to go out of stock. With these benefits and P&G's backing, the Auto ID Center decided to spread its technology further. By 2002, they had partnered with roughly 14 other corporate juggernauts, including Walmart, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Gillette, the U.S. Department of Defense, and Tesco, a multinational grocer. Within just a few years, Kevin Ashton's Hail Mary idea for using RFID tags in products had become a standard business practice. However, the executives hoped to keep the practice relatively secret. They didn't want to risk a scandal if people found out just how closely their purchases were monitored. But things didn't stay under wraps for long. Big corporations wanted to brag about their new tech. An article released in 2002 claimed that RFID would allow them to determine, quote, the how, when, and who of product use. Frankly, the news was too niche to concern many people, except for two investigative researchers and journalists, Catherine Albrecht and Liz McIntyre. In November 2002, Albrecht visited the Auto ID Center, and she even snuck into their Board of Overseers meeting. The center's chairman, who was also a VP for Gillette, took the stage. He proudly announced that RFID was ready to be released to the world. After three years of developing tags and readers at the Auto ID Center, Gillette had purchased half a billion chips and was ready to implant them in its products. The meeting wasn't just a celebration. Another director, Helen Deuce, 
followed the announcement with some sobering news. She acknowledged that most people around the world probably wouldn't like the technology because it could track everything, including them. But the good news, in her opinion, was that there was little anyone could do to stop them. Deuce went on the record saying, the Auto ID Center has a clear vision to create a world where every object, from jumbo jets to sewing needles, is linked to the internet. Compelling as this vision is, it is only achievable if the center system is adopted by everyone everywhere. Success will be nothing less than global adoption. End quote. The phrase global adoption sounds ominous, but even Albrecht found a ray of hope as she listened in on the meeting. Everyone in the room liked the idea of gaining better insight into consumer behavior, but it was clear they were aware of the need for public transparency. One executive from Intel summarized this in saying that while he supported RFID, he wanted to deal with public concerns about the tech from the get-go. If anyone else agreed with the Intel exec, they didn't speak up. Ultimately, P&G ignored these concerns and went even further. They began a secret experiment on the customers of a Walmart located in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. By late 2002, RFID tags had downsized even further. They were now as thin as a sheet of paper. And between the months of March and July 2003, these were the kinds of tags that P&G placed on some of its lipstick boxes. When customers picked the items up at the Broken Arrow Walmart, a CCTV camera discreetly snapped a picture of them. Then those images were sent to a P&G research team, nearly 750 miles away, who could assess them in real time. Chicago Sun-Times journalist Howard Walensky broke the story. He contacted P&G to see if they had any comment, but at least initially, the company flatly denied the incident. That same year, The Guardian also reported on both Tesco and Gillette doing similar surveillance in Britain. Gillette placed RFID chips in the packaging of its Mach 3 razor blades, so an RFID-enabled smart shelf could determine when customers picked up the packages. That triggered a camera to take a picture of them, and it sent those images to security personnel. A second camera snapped the shopper's photo at checkout. Security then compared the two images. If someone was seen picking up the razor blades from the shelf, but wasn't seen paying for them, that person was flagged as a potential shoplifter. Obviously, this method of anticipating theft was severely flawed. The customer could have left the item on another shelf when they realized they didn't need it, or a shopping partner could have paid for it. When reporters approached Walmart and Tesco regarding their separate trial runs, these companies also downplayed their methods. The way they put it, surveillance was permissible because their customers already knew they were being watched while shopping. Technically, they were right. Customers were aware that they were on camera. They just didn't realize they were being scrutinized. But if people considered that invasive, it was nothing compared to how far RFID chips could go. Coming up, RFID chips move off inanimate objects and into the human body. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Now back to the story. Starting around 1997, companies began to develop and implement plans for placing RFID tags in their product packaging. This method was intended to track an item's complete journey, ultimately streamlining their supply chains. But they didn't stop there. Corporations began to use RFID to gather unprecedented amounts of information on their customers' spending habits and other personal data. Investigative journalists tried repeatedly to reveal the privacy issues of RFID, but the tech was undeniably lucrative. It was integrated into hundreds of industries. Even veterinarians began implanting tiny chips, no bigger than a grain of rice, into people's pets so they could be identified if they went missing. By 2004, over 30 million home-again chips had been implanted in house pets, and the number grew by one million per year. Perhaps the most extreme advancement took place in November 2004, when the FDA approved VeraChip. The device was encapsulated in glass and meant to be injected near the tricep. If necessary, Doctors could scan that area of a person's arm and pull up a 16-digit ID number. They could then access the patient's medical records, insurance, and family contact information in Verichip's supposedly secure database. Unlike the Auto ID Center's goal for global adoption, this company didn't necessarily seek to chip everyone. It had just caught the market trend and developed a product in line with that. Privacy advocates warn that storing the information in chips could increase the risk of getting medical data stolen. Still, a handful of people all over the world chose to have the chip implant. One such person was a 44-year-old diabetic and New Jersey police officer named Sergeant William Koretsky. In 2006, Koretsky was involved in a high-speed chase and crashed into a tree. After being unable to fully answer the questions from EMTs, doctors later accessed the chip in his arm. Because of it, they were able to pull up his data and learn he had type 1 diabetes. As they took care of his other injuries, nurses ensured his blood sugar levels remained stable. When Koretsky recovered, he said he was glad he had the chip. A medical bracelet could have been damaged or lost, but the RFID didn't have that problem. It spoke for him when he couldn't communicate, and he credited it with helping save his life. 
Despite this positive press, most Americans were opposed to being implanted with a chip, including religious groups. Some believed that getting an RFID implant would associate them with the biblical Antichrist. They cited a verse from the Book of Revelation, which references a satanic connection to markings on the hand or forehead. Even those who weren't religious were wary of the idea. In November 2004, Slate magazine reported that 90% of respondents to a survey conducted by the Verichip manufacturer's own researchers thought that the product was creepy. These individuals feared being tracked and that their private information would be stolen. But even those who attempt to isolate themselves from invasive chips may still encounter them. After all, even if someone doesn't implant one of the chips, it's possible to still be wearing one. Luxury fashion lines use them to protect against counterfeits and maintain brand exclusivity. Customers who have been duped by knockoffs applauded this move. RFID would prevent them from being ripped off again. For instance, in 2016, outerwear brand Montclair began embedding RFID tags into their clothing. Soon after, Salvatore Ferragamo embedded tags into the left sole of its shoes, luggage, and small leather goods. It was a simple solution to a counterfeiting problem that cost the industry about $30 billion every year. But there was a catch. Unlike nearly every other RFID tag, which was turned off at checkout or thrown away with the outer packaging, these tags were meant to stay active for years to come. New advances meant the tags could discreetly be sewn into clothing and look like just another label, but they were specifically designed to survive normal wear and tear. This increased consumer convenience, but just like the medical RFID tag, privacy advocates saw an inherent downside. If a tag is attached to a jacket, it can potentially be tracked indefinitely. Not only can the purchaser's data be collected when it's bought, it can continue to be monitored by other readers as it's worn out and about. Together, these readers can then create a map of where that person goes and what they're doing. Ultimately, it was just another way people could be tracked without their knowledge. Although they could technically remove the tag, they might harm the look and value of the item. Soon, removing a tag may be impossible. Several companies have invested in developing textiles that integrate RFID and other technology into the very fabric of their clothing. That technology hasn't taken off yet, but it could become the next new method to track clothing. Ironically, these developments didn't cause much of a stir in 2016. It seems the public has been desensitized to privacy issues. If you remember from our episodes on PRISM surveillance, some people have apparently reached a point where they believe that if all their data is out there, there's nothing left to hide. As of today, most non-luxury clothes don't have RFID in them. But the technology is still a part of our lives, whether we know it or not. You might be surprised to learn that RFID is what enables us to use contactless pay with our credit cards. 
For better or for worse, RFID doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. Which is why it's all the more important that we're able to tell its good qualities from its potentially harmful ones. Next week, we'll discuss some possibilities, starting with conspiracy theory number one. Despite their denials, corporations are using RFID as one of many tools to gather as much information as possible on their customers. Conspiracy theory number two is that the U.S. government has implanted RFID chips in its citizens without their consent. And conspiracy theory number three, RFID vendors and their merchants aren't disclosing the full extent of the technology's vulnerability to security breaches. We'll also see what kind of personal information RFID is collecting and determine how safe RFID really is. For now, just remember that even if you leave your phone at home and you don't see any security cameras, it doesn't mean you aren't being tracked. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time for part two on conspiracy theories surrounding radio frequency identification. For more information on the topic, we found Spy Chips, how major corporations and government plan to track your every move with RFID by Katherine Albrecht and Liz McIntyre, helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Robert Heckert, with writing assistance by Mackenzie Moore and Allie Wicker. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. (laughs) 